The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So it is obviously the Christmas season. I happened to be in a fancy shopping mall the other day. I noticed a familiar tune. We're all going to sing it later this morning. It's kind of amazing to me. Songs like this are still playing in malls. The song is asking, what child is this? That song is asking maybe the most important question you could ever ask. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Can you imagine if everyone in the mall took that question seriously? I hope that's why you're here today, uh, to join us in taking that question very seriously. But fair warning, when we do take that question seriously, it will mess with us. It will, it'll bump us, elbow us, destabilize us, or in the words of this chapter, it will astonish us. So we're working through the Gospel of Mark. We remember that Mark, the author of this Gospel, he was an associate of the Apostle Peter, and so Peter obviously was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry. And Mark wrote this document we call a gospel based on Peter's account probably just 30 years after the life of Jesus. And at the heart of this book are three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? How should we respond to him? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? How should we respond to him? Well, Mark told us in the beginning of the book exactly who Jesus is. Look back at verse 1. The beginning of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's remember some of what that means. First of all, you see the word gospel. This would not be a new word to Mark's audience. It's, it's, it's a word that means there's just a splendid, amazing news that changes everything. Changes everything about life, changes everything about the world, changes everything about our context, the gospel. And, and Mark says, this is the gospel. And then he tells us that the gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we, we remember Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ is a title. It means something like God's promised king. So as you, as you think about that title, it's, it's actually quite astounding. Mark is saying all the works God has done as recorded in the Old Testament scriptures, all the promises God has made, all our hopes that God's going to act for his people, they come to fulfillment right here in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the promised anointed king. He's come. He's going to save his people. He's going to judge and renew the world. It's him. That's the good news. Jesus has come. And, and there's even more. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That really ups the ante on the intensity level, doesn't it? You can't, you can't logically look at Jesus like he's just a good teacher. He's not just an advice giver. He's the Son of God. He's no mere man. He's the eternal Son of God, the beloved of the Father. He's taken on human nature. He's come. He's Emmanuel, as we sang this morning, God with us, God among us. That's who Jesus is. So Mark has told us who Jesus is. He's not hiding any secrets. He tells you right at the beginning 
who Jesus is. And then in the rest of his book, he shows you and shows you and shows you and shows you again who he is. So in our passage this morning, Mark seems to think that if you really paid attention to just one day in Jesus' life, if you really were watching and listening for one day in his life, you could be convinced that he's the king. And that's what our passage shows us today. It's so interesting. We look at basically 24 hours in the life of Jesus. And we'll see many things that are surprising, but there's one thing we cannot miss as we look at this passage, and that is the reality of Jesus' authority as God's king. We're going to see the reality of Jesus' authority as God's king. And that makes sense, doesn't it? And if, we, if we're, you know, we're wrestling with Mark's claim, okay, that Jesus is God's promised king, well, well, if that's true, we should see in Jesus some unparalleled authority. He should stand out as a king like no other. So there's, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see four aspects of Jesus' authority as king from just, from just one day, just one day in his life. So here are those four aspects if you're taking notes. Number one, Jesus' authority in the truth. Jesus' authority in truth. Number two, Jesus' authority over evil. Number three, Jesus' authority over our brokenness. And then number four, Jesus' submitted authority. His authority that's so unique. It is a submitted authority. So in our time together in God's Word, we're going to see those four things and then at the end just unpack a little bit of how to respond to who Jesus is and the reality of his authority, okay? So let's begin. Number one, Jesus' authority on truth, his authority in the truth. You see that just at the beginning of this, of this story. They go into Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. He enters the synagogue and was teaching, and everyone's astonished. They have never heard anything like this before. And so we see Jesus' authority in this way, the authority of his truth, of the truth. So how do you feel when I drop that word on you, truth? Many of us, I think we have to admit that in some ways we're skeptics. We're skeptics. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll talk to people considering Christianity, there's a skepticism, right? Can I really believe this? And, and sometimes we have to admit where that skepticism is coming from, well, we've, we've seen religious leaders be abusive, or we've been in church situations that were hypocritical. And so we think it's hard to trust. That's not just the case when, when coming to religious claims. I, I think our culture at large is more and more skeptical. We've been lied to, we've lied. Um, stats show us, right? We don't, touch the, we don't trust media, we don't trust politicians. Conspiracy theories abound. We get, I mean, we're, we're, we are a community of people who get much of our info on life from social media algorithms. Can we, can we really trust anything? Uh, not only that, our cultural moment actually teaches in some places that truth claims themselves are always only simply a power grab. 
So if some, some group or some leader claims like a meta-narrative, a story that explains it all, postmodern thought, very hip in our day, says, oh, that's just, that's just another way to gain power. And to some extent, it's true, isn't it? Haven't leaders, movements, systems manipulated truth stories for control, for selfish gain? Of course that's true. Of course that's true. History's full of those stories. I think it helps me to see that this difficulty existed in Jesus' day as well. You'll notice that this Mark tells us the people listening to Jesus were astonished and, the, and a phrase for unpacking that is, he didn't teach like the scribes. He didn't teach like the scribes. Who were the scribes? They're influential, respected religious leaders, experts in the law, resident theologian experts in the law. They love to quote leading scholars, but as we see in Mark's account, they too would abuse truth for their gain even scriptural truth. Listen to what Jesus says later in Mark, Mark 12, 38. He's talking about the scribes. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. That jumps out at you. And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. How do you like that? You've, you've got the scribes who sometimes, they're, they're misusing their role in teaching truth for selfish gain, right? They want human praise, They'll even abuse the weak. How does Jesus feel about it when people treat truth like that? The truth is your condemnation will be greater, Jesus says, when you misuse truth. So I say all this just to show us how this issue of truth is one way Jesus stands out just so uniquely and so beautifully. There's no king like this. He goes to synagogue, a Jewish model for what would become a local church. You'd read the scriptures and explain them. And just by the way, you know, where does Jesus go on the Sabbath day? He goes to church, <laughs> even if it's raining. <laughs> um, even when it's an imperfect church. He's a church. Read Luke. This is his custom. He goes to church, and he's at Capernaum. That's his kind of home city at this point in his life. As he teaches, you see their minds are blown, Boof, blown. The word astonished here means something like they were shocked, they were strikingly amazed, even a little bit of panic is in this word. Ah, cannot handle him and what he's saying. And, and part of this is because it's just stark absolute truth. So I was just thinking of just some ways Jesus is so unique in his authority in teaching truth. Number one, in Jesus, you would see the sincerity of his truth. The sincerity of his truth. Unlike every other king or politician ever, Jesus never abused or slanted the truth. Never. Never. 
He, he never would bow to public opinion or try to massage the polls. He, he never even used truth to manipulate it. He tells it as it is, commends it to your heart and your conscience. Sincerity of his truth. Also, you will see in Jesus the purity of his truth. So many religious leaders, religious teachers, they can contradict themselves or they get so spiritual and visionary. It's like, what are you saying? Uh, it's never melted down to a proposition you can understand and handle. It's vague, mystical. Jesus' truth is just pure. It's the highest of reasonableness, moral perfection, integrity, no corruption or flaw. And he has this comprehensive understanding of the scriptures, of how people work, of life itself. When people listen to Jesus, it's like their chest was ripped open and everything was exposed for what it was. Just the incredible purity of his truth. Simple enough for a child to embrace the basics. Complex enough to overwhelm scholars for lifetimes. The purity of his truth. Third, and this is what our text here is emphasizing, the power of his truth. His truth is sincere, it's pure. The power of his truth. The, the scribes would like to quote references and surmise on theories and possibilities, and maybe this, maybe that. Jesus says things like, truly I say to you, boom. This is the truth. He doesn't need any references or higher authorities. His truth is self-authenticating from the power of who he is. In the Gospel of John, he says this about himself. Listen, th this sets Jesus apart from anybody, from everybody. John 14, 6. Most religious leaders like to say, hey, let me show you the way. That's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? I am the way. And then that next phrase, I am the truth. Ponder that. He's either a liar and you should run for the hills, or he is everything. He's the truth. No one comes through the Father except through me. So this is a different sort of king. This is one you can trust. Jesus is the authority on truth. So let's, let's pause for a second. Do you believe that about Jesus? Is he the king to the point where he is the authority on truth? If you don't believe that, what obstacles are in your way? Let's talk about those. Let's ponder those. If you, if you do believe that, if your mind's saying, yes, I believe that, can we say, well, how is that shown in your life? What, what would it mean to really take that very seriously? He's my authority on truth. What other, counterfeits, what other counterfeit authorities might you be entertaining? Is Jesus your king on how you see life? Because he's the authority on truth. Second authority, his authority over evil. We see this in verses 23 to 24. He's in the synagogue. He's preaching. People are astonished. Let's just pause for a second. We're thinking of Jesus' authority. His authority is the promised king. Wouldn't you kind of expect, you know, uh, people of Mark's day, he's writing to a Roman audience, would they would use this word gospel. The Caesars use that word gospel a lot. Caesar Augustus, the gospel, he's been born. He's changed everything. He's the king, right? And look at him. He, 
He has a throne, he's got armies and he's got cloaks and he's just drenched with power. He's the king. And then Mark says, no, Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord. So then already there's like Caesar versus Jesus. In this corner, Caesar. In that corner, Jesus, right? It's already set up in our minds. Mark's audience is under the reign of Emperor Nero at this point. So if Jesus is king and Caesar is king, wouldn't you expect Jesus to, he's going to go to Rome, knock on the door. All right, Caesar, bring it. You bring it. I'll bring it. Let's see who's king. Get out of my world. Or wouldn't Jesus at least go to Pilate? Pilate, Palestine's mine. I'm king, not you. Get out of here. Or wouldn't he at least go to Herod? Herod, you're a fake, a fake Israelite king. Get out of here. I'm king, not you. Jesus never does any of those things. He never does any of those things. He never flexes political power to a political leader. The only time he will appear before Pilate and Herod is in chains as a, is in chains as a criminal condemned. So inquiring minds want to know, how is it that you're king? Interesting. We're thinking about what we would expect Jesus to do as king. By the way, this deeply disappointed Israel, didn't it, that he never went and confronted the Roman powers that be? Deeply disappointed Israel. it, It disappoints some Christians today. It is interesting to see one of the first things Jesus does as king, what does he do? He goes to church and he preaches. (laughs) It's interesting. And when he did, it got crazy. You would never forget a church service like this. What happens? He preaches, they're astonished, and there's a synagogue of men with an unclean spirit, and he starts screaming. Man, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? Please don't do that, okay? Oh, gosh. But you, you wouldn't forget that church service, would you? You'd be like, do you remember? Listen, it's one thing to have a heckler or something, but this is different. This is not just some pro- protester. This is the enemy of enemies screaming at Jesus. This is a man who's so overtaken, his own personality has been overcome. This is a demon screaming at Jesus. This is a demon screaming at Jesus. Here's something we need to remember that's real easy for us to forget. Real easy for us to get. It is mysterious, but it's as plain as day when you unpack the scriptures. The counterfeit king of this world is not fundamentally a political king or a president or a parliament, though, of course, those can be puppets for the counterfeit king, right? No, the counterfeit king is deeper than that. It's bigger than that. And honestly, for Jesus to aim at dethroning Herod or Pilate would be aiming way too low. Way too low. Friends, I know they're a big deal at the time, but aren't political kings kind of like dandelions? You've forgotten almost all of them already. Who is the counterfeit king of this world? It's the devil himself. The scene just got expanded, didn't it? The counterfeit king is, a, is the devil himself, a, a personal being, fully evil, a liar who wants to destroy. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that he disguises himself as an angel of, anybody remember? Light. He, uh, he looks good. 
He sounds good. He's thoughtful. He's enlightened. And many times, he's religious. He's happy to stay invisible most of the time. That's why in the modern West, we're not even sure he exists. And he's very happy with that. He's very happy with that. He's an angel of light. He'll kill you with pleasure or pain. Doesn't matter as long as he kills you. And how does he kill you? He keeps you deceived about Jesus and stubborn in your heart towards Jesus. He could do that with nightmares. He can do that with money. As long as he does it. And as we think of the biblical storyline, right? Adam and Eve created in God's image to have dominion over the earth. Satan comes. He sounds reasonable, doesn't he? He's asking, oh, did God really say? He just wants to have a conversation. And what's his temptation? Hey, God's not good. He's not going to satisfy you. His word's not true. Don't worry about God's threats and don't really believe his promises. If you believe those two things, you replace him. And when Adam and Eve did that, they handed over the keys of this world to him. And so there's a way in which we have all been slaves to Satan's tyranny. We sang that line. It's a wise line in our Christmas carol. Come and save us from Satan's tyranny. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. Show you where I'm getting some of these thoughts. Paul's including himself in this, right? The apostle, he's talking about his life before conversion. He's talking about all our lives before conversion. It's not pretty. What does he say in verse 1? And you were? You were dead. It's not corpse dead because you're doing all sorts of stuff. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. But for our point right now, you're following the course of this world. So there's this like systematic idea of God's irrelevant, do something else. And we are following that course of this world. And who else are we following according to the apostle? You're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is that? It's Satan. His minions. According to this passage, I mean, it's, it's staggering, right? You don't have to be a Satanist to follow Satan. You just have to love something more than the God of the Bible. You just have to not trust Jesus under his tyranny. And look at verse 3, among whom, among whom we all once lived. This is a universal scope. This is everywhere. This is humongous. This goes far bigger than any of our... Uh, smaller geographical questions. This is epic. And look what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says. What's one way to talk about what Jesus came for? 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, here's another, whoa, punch in the mouth. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Why would we say that? Well, the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Rebellion against God. That's what he is about. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. Doesn't that make it so clear? This is the reason the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And then it's kind of ominous as we go back to our story in Mark. And what does the demon cry out? Have you come here? 
to destroy us? Yes. <laughs> yes. And so as Jesus comes, right, back in Mark 1, and, and you see this throughout the Gospels, the demons seem to panic and just expose themselves. Because, you know, pr presumably, right, it's kind of creepy. Presumably, the demon is in a religious guy who usually goes to synagogue. And when the scribes are teaching, the demon's never that worried about anything. Roll along. <laughs> Did I hear some legalism there? Good. Not stirring up faith, conviction, repentance. We're cool. Jesus starts speaking, and he's in hysterics. He's screaming out. Wow. Look at what he says, verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's a lot we could say here, but this, this is very strange, right? But it's also, to Mark, compelling evidence on who Jesus is. The demons know. This is just, whoa. This blew the roof on our expectations here. There's demons, and they know who he is. And did you see what they said? You're the Holy One of God. They've known him from the moment of their own creation. They hate him, and they fear him terribly, and they dread what is coming when he comes in judgment. They know. Wow. By the way, there's an important lesson for us here, right? Are demons atheists? No. Do they have real clear doctrine on the attributes of God? Yes. Are they sure of who Jesus is? Yes. Are they going to enjoy the goodness of God in eternity? No. We love truth, right? We love it. We want to know truth. But we love truth so that we can love the God of truth, truly love him. Knowing about God, fearing God, it's not enough to be right with God. We want to love, we want to trust Jesus, love him as our king. At any rate, Jesus is preaching, dude's screaming. Jesus is not worried by the demon. He doesn't have any need to do some spell or call for help. What's he say? Shut up and get out. And what does the demon do? He shuts up and he gets out. Because you are looking at unparalleled authority. This is real authority. This is authority over evil. Powerful authority. The authority that only the Son of God could have. In verse 27 to 28, I mean, I guess, they were all amazed. They questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands the unclean spirits. They obey him. Wow. And then verse 28, his fame spreads everywhere. I guess so. You going to tell somebody after you go to that church service? You have never seen church like this. His authority is seen, his fame explodes. Authority of his truth, authority over evil. Now we see a different kind of authority. Verses 29 to 31, it's so different, right? The authority in the synagogue is just like the epic battle for good and evil. 
And now, I mean, I can imagine Peter telling this story to Mark and be like, so after that crazy church service where Jesus just goes beast mode on the demon, right? Get out. Then we went back to my house for lunch. You know, I was really worried about my mother-in-law. She had a terrible fever. And back then, right, fevers, fevers can be dangerous, even today. And you see a different kind of authority in Jesus. Don't you, don't you love this? this is the beauty of Jesus, right? Of his, uh, as Jonathan Edwards would say, the diversity of his excellencies. He's the warrior of warriors. And yet when he comes to this, this poor lady who's got a terrible fever, what does he do? Look. They tell, him, they tell him about her, verse 31. He comes, first thing, he takes her by the hand. He doesn't, he doesn't have to do that. Takes her by the hand. What does that express? I mean, Mark is such a summarized, condensed gospel, right? Every word's important. He takes her by the hand. What does that express? His kindness, his gentleness, his compassion. He lifts her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. So what this tells you is Jesus has absolute authority over the created order, over our bodies, over our brokenness. He can heal. He can heal. And the idea that she, he heals her, she's not like, oh, no, I just need a nap. I can rest and feel better tomorrow. Oh, no, what does she want to do, like, now? She wants to do what every mom wants to do when you have company over. She's taking care of everybody. You got something to eat? You got something to drink? How's everybody doing? She's working. It shows you. What does it show you? She's completely healed, completely restored. She is ready for action. Let's go. I feel great. She's healed because Jesus has authority over our brokenness. I want to park, I want to park here for a minute. I think we find this both frustrating and beautiful. Why is it frustrating? Well, there's the painful question. You, you see people with faith, sometimes not even with faith, in the Gospels, Jesus encounters them, he heals them. What's the question you and I have? How come you don't always heal us? Yeah? How come you don't heal us? I know, I know this question is painful. We pray and we pray. Now, sometimes, right, sometimes there is healing. Don't we have stories? We do. We do. God comes through in amazing ways. Sometimes he hears us, he heals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And other times, we're in pain. He doesn't heal us. What's going on? Well, realize, I don't think the healing accounts of the Gospels are meant to form our expectations of what will be normal for our lives. It's not there in the epistles of the New Testament. It's not meant to be seen as normal for our lives. It's a, I think it's a bad interpretation of this genre and its place in the scriptures. It's not normal. Again, don't get me wrong. Does God heal sometimes? Does he do miracles? Does he answer prayers? Yes, he does. But it's an expectation that just like everybody walked with Jesus, they were all healed, so it will be to us. We'll come to Jesus, we'll be all healed. No, that's not, that's not what the Bible's telling you. But the miracles in the Gospels do do two main things for us. Number one, they validate who Jesus is. Mark has claimed this is the king. 
And according to the Old Testament scriptures, he's going to renew the world. He's going to renew the world. Prove it. All right. Healing, 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 healing. If you're watching Jesus' life, even his enemies admit he did miracles. Do you think it's true he can renew the world? He has authority over creation, over our brokenness. He, this is true. He's the king. He's the one. And this is where the beauty of it is. So the miracles are not to form our expectations of what will occur in our everyday lives now, but they are to form our expectations of what will occur when Jesus comes back. You will be healed. So healed. Heart healed, mind healed, body healed. Healed more than you can dream. So healed, blissfully healed forever in a new world with a new body with his new people. So healed, it's coming. It's coming. What a king. Well, 32 to 34, summarize what happens after that. They're in Capernaum and they bring the whole city. Did, did, did somebody runs out? I just saw something crazy with Peter's mother-in-law. The whole city comes. And what does Jesus do for the whole city? He heals them. Wouldn't you love to be there for that? Oh my gosh, just stand there and watch the line and watch next, 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 healed, healed, healed. And if you're like, this is hard to believe. I, I agree, it should be hard to believe. You've never seen anything like this. You won't. There's no one like Jesus. But look, here, here's, some, here's some reasons why you should trust it. Just a few reasons. Number one, why does Mark say they came in the evening to get healed? Verse 32, why would you wait? Did you hear what happened? It's lunchtime. Uh, let's go at six. <laughs> Give him some time. No, it's because it's the Sabbath and Sabbath has ended. This is a Jewish community. Now that Sabbath's over, we can go get healed. That's just one of those grains of truth where you're like, you know what? If Mark didn't have eyewitness account, there's no way he's throwing that in there. But it, this is how it worked. You, you would never say this if you're making it up. This is how, this is how it worked. They, they came when Sabbath was over. Secondly, listen, can you write a document that says an entire city got healed just 30 years after the fact? Can you write that and publish that if it's not true? I mean, some of you have lived here a long time. If I said, hey, remember when George the prophet was like healing everyone in Fountain Valley? And most of you would be like, no. <laughs> no. Mark can write it. And you know what people in Capernaum are saying? Yeah, we remember. Amazing. It's true. And then, and then this last verse just Boom. In this section, end of verse 34, he would, not, he would not permit the demons to speak because, do you see it? They knew him. You have to ponder that for a little bit, don't you? He wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew him. Hmm. It's strange. I think there's two reasons he doesn't want him to speak. Number one, wrong team. Wrong team. Whatever they say about Jesus, even if it's true, are their motives true? No. They're going to deceive about him. 
Uh, and, and I think in the spirit of the Gospels, I think that deception ends up being the people want to make Jesus a king into their own image, their own timing, their own way. So Jesus won't allow the demons to speak for that. But, uh, so wrong team, second, wrong timing. Jesus is going to tell a lot of people in Mark not to tell who he is and what he's done. And we see that, why? I mean, here we are as Christians, we're like, we're supposed to tell, right? We're supposed to tell people about Jesus, what he's done. We're supposed to tell, why are you telling people in Mark not to tell? Because Jesus carefully controls his own message until we really see what he came to do. You don't see it fully yet. That takes us to our final point. We've seen Jesus' authority as king, authority in the truth, authority over Satan, authority over our brokenness, a submitted authority. 35... Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out, and there he prayed. Hmm. What especially made him set the alarm for 3.30 on that evening? He just went from, he's just starting his ministry, and all of a sudden, he's on the cover of every magazine. His popularity is exploding and the crowds are coming because he's been healing. Jesus, he seems checked in his soul. He gets up real early and heads to the hills to pray and to pray for hours, to pray for hours. And he's not talking to himself, amen, right? He's talking to his father in heaven by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we see again that Jesus is a different kind of king. He is a submitted king. He wants to hear from his father and be led by his father and, and not be controlled by public opinion or just following the easy road. Because in the morning, Peter runs out, right? And he says in verse 37, everyone's looking for you. And can't you hear what's in it? You're the talk of the town. Everyone's coming. There's, you're, you're as popular as you could be. And Jesus says, let's go. We're leaving. We're leaving. How does he know to do that? What, what's he doing? He said, I've got to go preach in other places. He's following the authority of his father, and he's staying on mission. And what he's here to do, I came to preach. I'm going to preach to all the towns. He's actually leaving popularity. He's leaving apparent success. I don't think most of us could handle that. Leaving apparent success because he's a submitted king. Wow. And he's leaving to teach. You know, scholars show us, we're going to see it. The first half of Mark's book displays Jesus' authority as king over and over and over again. The second half displays why he came and how he uses his authority. And soon, Jesus will begin preaching something so shocking and so scandalous that even his own disciples would not believe him. They could not take it in. You see it in Mark 8, you see it in Mark 10. Let's look at the Mark 10 version. Will you read this with me? Saying, here we go. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I'm going to die. And we're like, well, we're all going to die. No, no, no. I'm going there at this time in order to die. Look at verse 45. Why did he come? Why did he come? How is he going to defeat the works of the devil? The Son of Man came not to be served. He could have kicked it there in Capernaum, been served for all his miracles. He came not to be served, but to serve. And the major way he will serve is what? Give his life as a ransom for many. He serves his people by dying for them in their place and buying them for himself. Or in an illustration we'll see later, he's going to tie up Satan, beat him up, and steal his stuff. And that stuff is us. He wins the victory to have us through his life, death, and resurrection. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus' authority was a submitted authority in order to save us to save us through the perfection of his life, his obedience to his father, his substitutionary death in our place in his resurrection, he saves us out of Satan's tyranny, out of our slavery to sin. He lived in submitted authority in order to save. Let's look at one more passage, Philippians 2. Let's read this together as well. Jesus though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a submitted authority that saves So to wrap it up, it's just one day in the life of Jesus. What a day. What a day. And you would see his unparalleled authority as the king, the Christ, the son of God, authority in the truth, authority over evil, authority over our brokenness, a submitted authority that saves. So let's ask our three questions as we conclude. Who is Jesus? He's God's promised king. He's the Christ. He's the eternal son. He's come. What did he come to do? He came to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. What should be our response? What should be your response? I got three words for us as we close. Number one, submit. How how do we respond to true, real, loving, wise, absolute, genuine authority? 
Submit. He's the king. You know what that means about you? You're not. (laughs) Isn't that the crux of becoming a Christian? Maybe you're not a Christian today, and you're looking at Jesus, you realize you've been living for other kings. Or, Or really sin, the core of its pride, you set yourself up as king. You're the God of your life. You'll do as you please. You're living in rebellion right in the face of the king. But look, he's such a kind king. He's such a good king, such a gracious king, came to save you. So that's that word, repent and believe. Repent. Turn from the lostness of all those other kings. It's broken. They don't love you. They won't save you. It won't do it. Don't you know that? Only here are you going to find forgiveness of your sins, satisfaction for your heart. Repent, turn, trust the real king, the true king. Submit to him. Be devoted to him. So if you're not a Christian, we just invite you. God himself invites you to repent and believe the gospel. And you'll, you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be adopted as a child of God. It's the, it's the gospel. It changes everything. Submit. Second, maybe you are a Christian. I want you to ask, if there is, is there an aspect in your life that is complete and total rebellion to the king? In general, you love him. In general, you want to follow him. You got an aspect or two in your life where you're like, I know. I'm just, nope. I'm telling Jesus. I'm telling him no. What shall I say to you? What shall we say to one another? You can never complain about Christians being hypocrites until you stop being one yourself. And we all have a little bit in us, don't we? I'm, I'm, I'm not only pointing the finger. I have my own hypocrisies. We need to live in constant repentance, don't we? Jesus, be king over my mind, over my heart, over my body, over my relationships, over my time, over my entertainment, over my hobbies. Be king. Submit. Second, seek. Seek. I love how in this one day, you have the three strands of the Christian life all braided together. Jesus is the truth, and he's preaching. So what do we need to hear from? God's word. Jesus is given up in the dark to go out of the woods and do what? Pray. And number three, Jesus goes to synagogue. And look what you have, word, prayer, community. Word, prayer, community. And if Jesus is king, you want to seek him, you want to know him. What are just the basics, Christianity 101, what are those basic threads on how you seek Jesus as king? Word, study, learn, pursue a knowledge of God's word, prayer. You guys, if Jesus had to get up to go pray, do you think you need to? Or are you like, no, Jesus, I'm spiritually stronger than you are. (laughs) But, But listen, like, Wake up to our own foolishness. A prayerless life is a foolish life. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a subtle, like, pride. I don't need God's help. Let's pray. And you're like, it's hard for me. And all God's people said, amen. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's work. You got to get up in the wood. You got to get up while it's dark and go to the woods. And they don't even have a Starbucks there. Jesus didn't have a warm cup of joe, you know, waiting with a leather chair so he could do his devotions. He's sitting on a rock. The wind's blowing. He's praying. Pray. 
And then community, right? Christian community, fellowship with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, serving one another, meeting together. That's how we seek. Submit, seek. Third one, share. Share. We know the full story now. We know what Jesus came to do. And Jesus is such a great king. He and our neighbors deserve it. Pray for the people you know who don't know Jesus. Pray. Pray for soft hearts, open eyes, open ears. Pray. And then as you can, talk about Jesus. Invite him to church, share the gospel, read Mark with him. However the Lord leads you to do it, let's go. Be a little more bold. Let's share the news of this king. He's worthy of it, isn't he? He's worthy of it. Let's pray. Jesus, there's no king like you. We thank you for your great love for us. We don't deserve it. We've been rebels. We've been fakes. We've been hypocrites. And still you love us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us on a cross. You defeated our great enemy, the work of Satan, sin, death. You're the king. You you rule and reign right now. One day you're going to come back. Lord, we want to... We want to live as your people. We want you to be king. So save us, Lord, if we don't know you today. Save somebody today. Bring them to faith in yourself. They could be forgiven of all their sins, adopted as a child of God. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you in every way where there's aspects of our lives that are displeasing to you, Lord. Let us bow the knee of our hearts and our lives to you. Lord, help us seek you as you deserve. Help us make a plan. Help us stick to it. Help us to push. Help us to grow. Word, prayer, community. And Lord, help us share this news. Lord, we think of people we know and love. They're lost without you. They need you, Lord. You've saved us. We ask that you would save them. Help us be a part of sharing this great gospel of our beautiful king. It's for you we live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.